0: Hi friends, this is Carrie Morrison. Welcome to Heart Forward, Conversations from the Heart. Anthony Ruffin is a gifted advocate who has worked for the past 20 years in Los Angeles, seeking to gain the confidence of the most vulnerable people living on the streets, people who are chronically homeless suffering with serious mental illness. In this interview, we are going to gain vicarious insight into Anthony's approach and see the realities of our homelessness crisis through his eyes. Anthony has visited Trieste twice, and he will compare and contrast how people with mental illness are cared for in that community in comparison with the U.S. Thanks for listening today. Hey, this is Carrie Morrison, and welcome to another podcast interview, and this time another live in person interview in this post COVID time we're in, which is Awesome. I'm sitting here today looking at my dear friend, Anthony Ruffin, who I've known for many years. And we're going to hear a little bit about his. He's probably one of the most Preeminent voices advocating for people who are chronically homeless with serious mental illness, and um, there's a lot to learn from the perspective that he brings to this conversation today. So, welcome, Anthony.
1: Thank you, Carrie. It's Thank so, you for having me.
0: Yeah, it's so good to see you. We haven't seen each other for fifteen, sixteen months.
1: Yeah, it's been a long time. It's
0: been a long time. Well, you look fantastic. Thank you. You too. <laughs> so, Anthony. I always like to start these conversations just understanding a little bit about your origin story. I know that you and I met probably around 2013 or 2014, but your your career in this space of working and homelessness precedes that. So can you tell us a little bit about where you're from and how you kind of wandered into this career path you're in?
1: Well, I'm from the city of Los Angeles. I would say my career path started in South L.A., working with individuals that were sick from mental illnesses, doing case management, stuff like that. I did that for like seven years in South L.A. And then I went to Santa Monica and I started working with Santa Monica's top 20 most vulnerable people on the streets in a project called Project Safety Net back in 2008, I believe it was. That's where I cut my teeth at outreaching and, and doing this type of work.
0: What group were you working, what organization?
1: Uh, the people concerned mm-hmm. was called OPCC at, at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I um, jumped on a bicycle, rode around Santa Monica. They gave me uh, some pictures of 20 individuals that needed to be brought indoors, super sick people. I went about trying to make that happen and was pretty successful at it. And I learned a lot from a lot of different people. Yeah, and that's where it started at. I went to Housing Works under Molly Lowry, probably about 2010, I believe it was. She taught me the finer points of this work. Learned a lot from her over the seven years. I kind of just stayed in her ear and talked to her all night, every night. And she just taught me so much more about this work and the meaning of this work.
0: Yeah, let's talk about Molly Lowry for a minute, because I know she's a person who had a huge impact on you and a huge impact on a lot of people in Los Angeles. She passed away just a few years ago. Huge loss to our community. Tell us about what was so special about Molly and how she mentored you. What was the secret sauce that she would offer?
1: Um, Molly wasn't just the director of housing works, She was also an outreach worker, case manager like everyone else. And she taught us never take no for an answer you stick with that individual until uh, that individual is house and you continue to work with that individual and housing is just the first piece of it. I think Molly was in social service 30 years, 35 years and Molly always kept all of our clients. Um, who she, who she worked with had her personal phone number and they could talk to her at any, any time. And we would be out there sometimes eight, nine o'clock at night and we started at seven in the morning And we didn't quit until the job was done. If somebody was unstable in a unit or on the streets, we would be out there in their apartments knocking on doors and helping people instead of trying to hospitalize people.
0: You mentioned she had a management position at Housing Works, but she was still doing work in the field, which is kind of a an interesting, that doesn't happen often. People end up in a management job and they're behind the computer in the office. But did Molly do that because she wanted to keep her skills fresh or that was just where her passion was?
1: I think that was just where her passion was. I think she just happened to be a director of Housing Works, but I think her passion was being in the field, helping people. And I think That's what Molly was all about, was just helping people. She never quit. She never, never, never quit. And she inspired her staff that way to take on that mantle and be that way. Staff meetings were totally different. We sat around and we talked about individuals that were really, really difficult. And even though she was the director of Housing Works, she said with her whole staff and we kind of all just figured it out together and we all came up with plans. And she would say, "Okay, we got to plan A, B, and C. And we would go about the work. And she was a part of that work.
0: I know there was a famous motto attached to housing works, which was to do whatever it takes for as long as it takes. And so clearly you saw that modeled by Molly. Yeah. What keeps nonprofits generally from really being able to do that, in your opinion?
1: I think it's contracts. I think it's just all contracts. Like I know housing works didn't get paid to stabilize people in their housing. They didn't get paid to follow people once they were housed two, three years. They didn't get paid for that type of work. We did a lot of things that were different that weren't in the contracts. Molly was a genius at keeping our contracts fairly simple and allowed us to be creative and do that type of work. And I think funding streams at this point is what's causing that.
0: Holding that back. Yeah. So that's an important point for people listening to this podcast who don't fully understand how homeless services are paid for. You have on the one hand government contracts, which usually have a lot of strings attached and requirements. And then you have philanthropy, which will pay for kind of what we would call the extras, but arguably the extras are the most important things. Mm-hmm. So housing. Works, if it did have contracts, would use their charitable funds to pay for this extra effort that you're describing. Because no government agency is going to pay for you to be nine o'clock at night waiting for someone to be hospitalized.
1: No, I think Molly used her unrestricted funds to pay for that type of work and really, really good work. We helped a lot, a lot of people. Still helping them. After Molly Pass, yeah, still working with a guy, person that went seen two weeks ago.
0: That was on your caseload from Housing Works. Correct. Yeah, I have a sense that you try to emulate Molly in the sense that you also are personally contacted by people you've worked with through the years. Maybe tell us one story of someone even going back to the outreach you did at Housing Works or even before and how you're, you're still in contact with somebody.
1: Well, I ran across a person yesterday that was a, a client of Housing Works that I seen on the streets and started helping her. There's a couple of people that are in supportive housing right now that were Housing Works clients that I still go and see when I need to go see them. If something happens, they give me a call. I got a few clients that I worked with in 2010 and still call me when they need something. If I happen to see one of them on the streets, I'll pull over and stop and say, how you doing? So it's just that type of work. You just remember the people that you worked with and they all have your phone number. You help them when they need help. And they're connected to other agencies, of course, and everything else. But we have that relationship with individuals where we are able to help individuals. I think, yeah, the person I'm talking about was off their medication, addicted to meth, in support of housing. Supportive Housing Services called us. We went in. Me and my coworker from Housing Works, Linda. The person ended up back on injections in a program and doing pretty well stabilizing in an apartment right now. But that took us like two or three weeks to get that done. And most of this work we have to do off the clock, right? Yeah. Because we work for different agencies now. So
0: Yeah, Siglinda works for the county health department. Correct. So would you say it's a certain level of trust and rapport that you had built up with this person, that you were trusted by them as you came in to suggest how they might approach this crisis they were in?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's just trust that we built up over the years with individuals. And these individuals have our phone numbers at all the time. They can call us and we're almost like friends.
0: So, you know, a lot of people have so much emphasis right now with our crisis of homelessness about we've got to get people housed. We've got to get people housed. And as I was on my own learning journey and learned about Housing Works, I always remember Housing Works said that getting people housed is just the first step. No one ever really thinks about what happens after they're housed. And traditionally, there's not been a lot of support for people who are now gone from living on the street. They're in their own apartment. Now what? Tell us a little bit about how important that is, that post-housing support and where we fall short, perhaps.
1: Yeah, a housing works philosophy was down at the person house, the work really begins, right? Because we're looking at the whole person, right? Um, how can we make this person a part of the community and we start all of this work all over again we go from outreach to case management and we actually bumped up services right where we were going to see the person on the streets maybe once twice three times a week now they're in the apartment we are going to see them five times a week right and we're spending a lot of time with them teaching them how to cook personalizing the apartment connecting them to all of the things that they need food banks, whatever it may be, buying crock pots, sitting there, putting food in the crockpots, showing them how to cook, um, hanging out with them in their apartments, listening to music with them and connecting them to services. Once a year, Housing Works would take people on camping trips for like a week in the desert. Just things like that we used to do. We were pretty successful at it. And We built this community within a community within Housing Works because any one of our clients or people we worked with, it was an open door policy where they can walk in on Wilcox and come see us and hang out in the living room downstairs and just hang out all day. It was just that type of atmosphere. It wasn't nothing to see a famous person sitting there playing his cello and we're just in there working and everybody's listening to him play his music and He was just one of us.
0: Yeah, it's a pretty remarkable culture that really emanated from Molly. And, you know, so many extraordinary people worked with her. You among Ben Adam, who I just interviewed for this podcast as well, and others. So her legacy definitely lives on.
1: Yeah, I I think Molly just had this huge influence over her, her staff. It was her philosophy. More more importantly, it was her vision. Because she once told me that visions don't change. Philosophies may, but visions don't change. And it was just her vision of how she's seen social services. And um, we went about it and we didn't didn't think twice about it.
0: So I feel like I met you right around 2013 or so when we created the Hollywood Top 14 list and... That list we had in Hollywood in 2010 done what was at that point we called to a homeless registry where we went out and identified everybody who was homeless in Hollywood within a certain radius and surveyed them, took their picture and created a vulnerability index for the most vulnerable people. That was the philosophy back in 2010 to begin to look at housing the most vulnerable first, because otherwise the system would house the easiest people, which would be called creaming, and then the most vulnerable would be left on the street. So in 2013, we found that despite success being made in Hollywood on getting people housed, there was this group of people who hadn't moved from the alley they'd been living in or the bus bench. They were truly, we called it the highest hanging fruit and came up with a list of 14 people. What do you remember about those early days of the Hollywood Top 14? Because I always remember how Molly gave special permission for you to be involved in that effort.
1: Well, I remember Molly telling me right before she passed away, she said, Anthony, these individuals that you're going to be working with, I need you to stick to them no matter what. And I remember Molly walking off the front porch of Housing Works and going home and never returning back to work. And she passed away a few days later. And uh, they kind of just stuck with me. And um, it wasn't a, an alliance too much to Housing Works, it was an alliance to Molly and um I didn't too much care about the policies or procedures of any organization at that time. I just went about the work super fascinating because these individuals were super, super sick and super complex. And it was a system that everybody says that's broken and all of these other things. And navigating that system and learning about that system and learning about grave disability and learning about IMDs and medications and all of this other stuff was just fascinating to me. It felt like I was in school.
0: Yeah, it was fascinating (laughs) to me, too, because it is so complicated. Yeah. Do you remember the whiteboard session we did on our friend, Mr. B? Yes, I do. Okay. I'm thinking maybe I would like to hear your side of that story and just to very briefly describe it for people listening there was an individual on the Hollywood Top 14 who had really been elusive. It was difficult to secure help for him to get him off the street, and he desperately needed treatment. And we did a whiteboard session one day in a big room where we found out that everyone from PATH, people assisting the homeless, to housing works, to the fire department, paramedics, to the police department, to LASA, I mean, every agency you could possibly imagine had some interaction with him. And we drew that up on a whiteboard. And we realized that he was, all these silos were interacting with this particular person and there was no positive outcome. And I remember you agreed to kind of be the person to knit all that together. Maybe talk a little bit about that situation was so complicated. And I know you're still in touch with that person today.
1: Yeah, it, it was super complicated because, well, I think what we did care, we'd done our homework. We did a little achieve Done our homework and we found out all of these things that happened to this individual from out of state all the way into the state and what happened. And we just really, really done our homework and contacted all of these agencies that touched him, fire departments, LAPD, um, arrested a million times, um, super sick on the streets, meth addiction, you name it, he had it. And we done our homework and we came up with a plan and we contacted all of these agencies to get all of this background information about this individual. And we came up with a a sustainable plan. And we kind of knew what steps we were going to take as we took those steps. And when we took those steps to get this individual stable, a plan never was to leave him. And I think that was like six years ago. And we're still with this guy. And uh, I think that that's what's different back then than what's now, right? We didn't hand him off to other individuals to finish the work. We actually followed him through the IMDs to the courtroom.
0: Describe what's an IMD and why were we going to court? What was happening there?
1: Well, when he first was put on a hold and he went to USC, I believe it was, we followed him into USC. We took the history and we took it to USC and we talked to the psychiatrist in USC and then when he was.
0: Because let me point out, because normally if you did not follow him into the hospital, he very likely would have just been yeah, released he would have been, again. He
1: would have been released again because the hospitals only see that person in that space in that time. They don't know the history. They don't know anything about how this individual is living on the streets. They don't get that. That's not their job. It was the first time probably in L.A. County where somebody actually went in and took the history with them about this individual. And when we found out is when he went over to Augusta Hawkins, that history didn't follow him. So we had to take that same history back over to Augusta Hawkins, right, and talk to the psychiatrist Augusta Hawkins, And then we found out about the 5250, then we found out about the red hearings, and then we found out about
0: all of these things. So let me stop you right there because this is so important what you are describing and for people listening, I think they might be surprised to hear that a person who has been placed on a psychiatric hold here in multiple hospitals that you're starting all over again. Yeah. And you are coming in with a, I think we called it a dossier of information just to yeah. present a composite of this person has a long history of homelessness and multiple hospitalizations. Please don't release him again. And you're constantly under the top 14 model. You are constantly following that person through each step of the process. And it should be known that that is not something that you are compensated for. No. The system does not no. pay for that. The
1: system does not pay for that. <laughs> And a lot of people think, okay, the person went on a hold. But once that person goes on a hold and you're responsible for that person, your work really, really begins because now you're navigating the hospital system. And this work goes on 24-7. There's no, okay. it's Friday. I'm off on a weekend. This person is still in the hospital. Hospital shifts change. Psychiatrists change. And you're not sure if this information is getting to one psychiatrist, to the next psychiatrist. So you're basically working all weekend long, 24 hours a day. Because you don't want this person released on a Saturday or at twelve o'clock at night, you just don't want that. And we've seen that happen before. The work really, really begins.
0: So in this case, you mentioned, and just to keep the terms fresh for people listening, that after a fifty-one fifty hold, which is seventy-two hours, then the next step is a fifty-two fifty hold, which are they're hard to get. That's for fourteen days. Yes. But obviously, you were camped out. And not giving up on, <laughs> on making the case for a longer hold to get this person stabilized. Correct. Yeah.
1: Correct. And uh, in between that, they have patients' rights They come into the hospital if they want to see patients' rights. That, and they don't believe that they should be held that long. So you have all of these things that happen inside of this hospital. And Sometimes that's a really, really good thing. Right. Because individuals have rights. Right. So all of these things are going on in the hospital and you're advocating, advocating, advocating with pictures and history and letters and everything else. And that's another thing we did, Carrie. We went and got letters from the whole community. Right. We really done our outreach. We just didn't outreach him. We outreached the whole community and brought all of those letters together, which made it difficult for the psychiatrists not to look at that evidence. Yeah. And what a lot of people don't know is the psychiatrists can't give you any information, but you're allowed to give them information. Right. We found that out, too. We did that. And um, when he was in Gus the Hawkins. He um, was disruptive on a unit. I believe he was. And he had a court date. And we had to show up to the court data, Division 95 Mental Health Court, in case we had to testify or anything like that because The work is not done.
0: So in in that case, the proposal uh, was to consider him to be gravely disabled.
1: Due to a mental illness.
0: Due to a mental illness. And that is the bar that you have to pass for the court to place that person under the care of the public guardian. Correct. And that's a hard Hard. hurdle as well. What do you remember about that hearing? I remember about the hearing that um, his attorney,
1: his advocate, walked up to me and asked me, do you have anything to say regarding my client? And I was like, yeah. So I I told him all his history, he's like, stop. Don't want to hear that. You don't have anything positive to say. We don't want to talk to you. Okay. So he instructed the client not to say anything, not for me to testify. And because the evidence was so overwhelming, because we went to Division 95 and we put all of that documentation into his record. We put all of that documentation into his record. division 95 a week before he went to court and um the judge got to read the evidence and even though he presented pretty fair the judge got to look at the evidence of him on the streets and she conserved him and we thought it was over then and it really really wasn't
0: we'll continue this but i always want to point out that and i had a podcast interview a few weeks ago about the california conservatorship system and i always like to say a disclaimer and you and i will talk about trieste in a few moments In Trieste, they don't involuntarily hospitalize people, and we find that remarkable and inspiring. My argument is that in the United States, we let people get so sick that a conservatorship is actually a way to save someone's life. Unfortunately, that is a tool, and we wish it weren't so, but in this case based on his history this was his opportunity to kind of start to become on a road to recovery again correct so in the conservatorship it's not forever it's not, not forever. forever so maybe describe i don't know if i've even heard this part of the story when you're placed under the care of the public guardian you're typically then placed in an imd so describe what that is and maybe what you maybe saw transforming about him as he was placed under a treatment plan?
1: Well, IMD is an institution for mental diseases. For me, I, I don't understand. It's a mental disease, right? They call it a mental disease. But on the streets, we don't call it a mental disease. We don't treat it as a disease. But in locked facilities, they treat it as a disease, which is, I don't know, kind of crazy to me. But he went under a treatment plan. He was placed on medication. I had to visit him at least once a week at that IMD to build a relationship with him because I knew the plan was to not let him go. This went on for over a year and it got so commonplace that he knew my number by heart. He still knows my number by heart. We built this amazing relationship where our bonds got stronger. When he got out, I think it was on Thanksgiving, he walked away from his boarding care on Thanksgiving weekend and we showed up, was able to talk to him and put him in a motel room. And um. We eventually housed him, but it just shows the the dedication to the work and what needs to happen with doing this work. You know, this work doesn't call for a warm handoff. These are individuals that are super sick. And I think it goes back to Kennedy when he, did the Mental Health Act, it was to care for people and that promise never happened. We shouldn't have the term grave disability on the streets in the United States.
0: Yeah. Now I'm remembering when he did walk away from his board and care. And for people who see on the streets of Los Angeles, people who are seriously mentally ill, kind of wandering the streets, this is illustrative of the systemic challenge that we lose track of people so easily. And unless they have someone like an Anthony Ruffin attached to them, they can walk into the horizon and now lost again, only to show up months later and everything starts all over again.
1: Yeah, everything starts all over again. It costs the hospitals, costs so much money to start this process all over again. And then with that process, you have to do outreach and basically wait till this person becomes greatly disabled, which is like a nightmare in itself because you almost have to basically watch somebody almost die because they refuse services.
0: Where is uh, Mr. B living now?
1: He's living in Hollywood. He's doing okay in Hollywood. He's still the same. He's still trying to be a rapper he's still hanging out in hollywood he's not roaming the streets of hollywood with his shirt off and all of these other things anymore and he's basically stable for the most part and as a unit he's still connected to money management he's connected to social services like six years later um i went and seen him probably about three weeks ago he was in his unit, stopped by, hey, Anthony. So, yeah.
0: So, Anthony, if you were to describe, you've been doing this now for a long time in Santa Monica, in Hollywood, and now for the county, we'll come back to the county role in a minute. But if you were to describe what it takes, like what kind of human qualities it takes to do this work, to really be involved in this effective outreach and, and engaging people with serious mental illness or substance abuse, what are you looking for if you're trying to hire someone to to do this work.
1: I'm looking for the same type of people that are kind of like me, and they're very hard to find. It takes a dedicated person that wants to do the work, that wants to learn how to do the work. It's long hours. It's fighting a system, advocating for a client in a system, and you have to be willing to do that 24-7, especially when you're talking about not just housing somebody, but changing the whole parameters of their life. It takes a special person. Not a lot of people up for the job.
0: Yeah. So after Housing Works, you went to work for...
1: I left Housing Works and I was looking for employment and I could have went probably anywhere anywhere in the county to work at any agency. And um, I remember sitting in my backyard with my wife and she said, where are you going to go? And I said, Skid Row. And she was like, what? Why would you want to go to Skid Row? And I was like, that's where you can... Test your skills, and that's where you can build up your skills. And if who wouldn't want to go to Skid Row and work? Skid Row is like it in L.A. County for severe mental illness, substance abuse, homelessness. You name it, it's on Skid Row, and I want to go to Skid Row. And I went to Skid Row.
0: Okay. So we've got people listening to this who don't live in LA. They have maybe vaguely heard reference to Skid Row. And I haven't spent much time there either, other than going on a tour with you. So I am no expert in Skid Row. What is Skid Row? How did it become what it has become? And provide like a snapshot of the human misery that exists there.
1: Skid Row is 50 blocks of just homelessness severe mental illness, substance use, you name it. It's on Skid Row needles, heroin, crack, meth, spice, and everything is for sale under a dollar, right? And it's no housing, no no houses on Skid Row with green lawns and all of this other stuff. So there's no community in an uproar about the homeless situation on Skid Row because you don't have homeowners there. It's a Free for all for all the homeless individuals in L.A. County, I would say. It's super resource rich. It's a lot of resources on Skid Row. But for the most part, if you're mentally ill or if you don't have a place to go, Skid Row is kind of like a savior for you in some ways, right? Because where else can you go in the city without being pushed along by the police or anything like that? So Skid Row is just 50 blocks of just extreme poverty extreme mental health issues, complex in so many different ways. Yeah, and it goes on 24-7.
0: So as you entered that ecosystem, which is what it is, was there anything that confronted you that surprised you that you did not anticipate?
1: You know, it was a few things that kind of shocked me about Skid Row. It's just how long Skid Row has been around. It's been around for over 125 years. And there's never been a plan for Skid Row, right? LA has a huge, huge, huge question to ask. What are we going to do about Skid Row? Skid Row is one of the biggest concentrations of homelessness people in the country. 2,500 people homeless at one time in these small blocks. You have SRO housing that's everywhere on Skid Row.
0: What is SRO housing?
1: Um, Single room occupancy. And this is where our most vulnerable people are housed and stay. And just because they're housed on Skid Row, that doesn't mean they're not vulnerable, right? And then you have people on the streets from all over the country, just all over the country. I remember the first six months of walking around Skid Row, it's like, like a battle zone. Like I need to get out of this battle zone for a couple of weeks because it, it's just that much trauma you see on Skid Row. is nothing to walk over people that are vomiting on the streets, needles in their arms, horrible wounds on them, a severely mentally ill, walking down the street naked. That's just an everyday occurrence on Skid Row. And you ask yourself, as you look at Skid Row, and you turn around and you look, and you see these big, beautiful buildings, and you're like, how does LA let this happen?
0: So, you know... We've all seen the press conferences in Skid Row that what we need is more housing. We need more housing. And then that's kind of a general response to what our homeless crisis in in L.A. city and county. We need more housing. Absolutely. Housing is absolutely critical. Is that the answer for Skid Row?
1: I think we need more care. We need to care about human beings. It's not just about housing. People are broken. You can't take a broken person and put them in a house and think they're going to heal on their own. I think we need to take people and put them in a safe environment and care for them. A person once told me that a mental health break is like a bone breaking. Because we put them in an apartment doesn't mean it healed. It takes time. And for me personally, I don't care if you want to go in a shelter or not. I don't care if you want to go in a housing or not at this time. The object is to care for you wherever you're at. You always hear this thing, meet them where they're at. Care for them where they're at. That's my philosophy.
0: What do you think gets in the way of that?
1: <clears throat> I think um, what gets in the way of that is um, we have all these mantras in L.A., all these mantras in L.A., and the mantra has never been care for somebody. So it's housing, housing, housing. So you got everybody thinking, housing, 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 housing. Um, Then shelter. Everybody going to a shelter. Everybody going to a shelter. But nobody says, why can't we just care for people? Some people don't want housing. Some people don't want to be in shelters. Why can't we just care for people in a meaningful way? I think social services be about that.
0: Do you see any agencies or entities in downtown that do the best they can in that respect, similar to the way Housing Works, I think, did emulate that?
1: No, because Housing Works is something super, super special. Molly was super, super special. She, the way the contracts were, was just totally different, right? And social services is helping a lot of people, no doubt about it, a lot, a lot of people, But it's so many people that are underserved, right? I meet people all the time. Instead of us pushing our agenda on them, maybe we should just listen to them and see what they want. Because a lot of the times they don't want substance abuse programs. A lot of time, they don't want mental health programs. Sometimes they just want a safe place to be. And if that's all they want and they want to feel safe, let them feel safe. Why we're putting our agenda on everybody.
0: If you could wave a bit of a magic wand, you know, someone came along and said, hey, we want to pilot a different way of living, a different way of caring for people that they might actually find appealing. I want to give you the full reign of how you would design it. Is it near downtown, in downtown? Is it in nature? Is it on the outskirts? Is it congregate? Is it, you know, what will it look like to you, Anthony?
1: What did it look like to me? It'd be a full array of type of housing, right? But it'd be meaningful. Each engagement would be meaningful. Each person's life would be meaningful. A person once told me a long time ago, when I first got into social services, if the goal is not for that individual to live like you're living, if that's not the goal, then why are you doing it? For me, the goal is for everybody that I work with to live like I'm living. That's the goal. And due to that person's disability, if they can reach just some of their goals, that's the goal. People don't want just housing. They want community. They want things to do. They want employment. They want to feel purposeful. They don't want to feel purposeful to an agency where they're just taking medication and sitting there all day. That's the agency's purpose. What about that person's purpose? I think so a lot of smart people in the social services today. Top of these agencies, um, housing for health, Sheree, Doctor Sharon, all of these people—they're super, super smart, and they're starting to look at the whole person. But how do you put programs in that look at the whole person? How do you use a substance abuse counselor to look at substance abuse? To look at a, a community health worker to see what's going on with this person in the community? A clinician and a doctor, and they all coming together. With that person in the middle, saying what they want from each individual and each individual doing their job to make that person's dreams come true. That's what we need. It's not about the housing.
0: Yeah. I want to jump ahead to Trieste and then we'll come back to this in a moment because you and I... Both had the opportunity to travel to Trieste twice to attend their international conference and to see their community-based system up close and personal, which I know impacted a bunch of us and seeing how humanely people could be treated. When you went on the first trip in 2017, what were your big takeaways from that experience? I think the
1: biggest thing for me is when I walked the streets that night and I didn't see paramedics everywhere. I didn't see police everywhere. I didn't see homeless individuals everywhere on the streets. I I just didn't see it and I couldn't believe it because I come from this fear and I just could not could not believe it and then we got to go to the center we got to go to the center and I seen people actually working
0: it was a community mental health center yeah right?
1: Seen people working and then I realized that some of the people that were serving me coffee at these shops I was visiting were part of this system and I would have never knew And that was amazing to me that people had meaningful jobs. And then when they talked about somebody having a break in a psychiatrist coming into the home and sitting there six, seven hours to keep this person out of a hospital and talking to this person. That made a lot of sense to me. That that made so much sense to me. Just to see that and see how that community, everything is meaningful. It's not superficial. Everything is meaningful. Everything they do is meaningful. In every interaction that this person has that's in this community that's suffering from mental health is meaningful. And they can go anywhere, anytime to get the help that they need. The family can actually call this system and get this help. It, it was just amazing.
0: It's a 24 24- Seven system. Yeah. And they don't call the police.
1: No. <laughs> no.
0: Do you remember the story? I know we divided up our groups, but were you part of the group when we went to the hospital? And I always like to tell people that in a city of 240,000 people, they have six psych beds in an unlocked ward with no restraints. And I know we divided up our team in half. Were you part of the group when they told the story about a woman who had been brought there by her family? And obviously, hospital is the last resort. And then she walked out and started wandering the streets of Trieste. Were you there for that story? No, I wasn't. Okay. And then, so we all said, well, then what happened? And then they said, well, one of the staff followed her. And the, the room just was like, what? You followed her? Oh, followed her for like five hours and then finally got her to have a cup of coffee and come back. And the Americans in the room were saying, well, you could never do that. You would have risk management issues. You would have overtime issues for the staff. Liability, liability issues. issues. But to your point, so the Italians looked at us and said, well, what, you would just let her walk out and wander the street? And it's like. For years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's what we do here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember any other <laughs> kind of mind-blowing experiences from that? From either that or the second trip you went on.
1: The whole Trieste thing was just mind-blowing for me. I remember when they came out here and they visited our system, and it was like everything is locked. Everything is behind closed doors. Everything is windows. Everything is this. It feels separated. And then one gentleman said, when you went on skid row, it seemed like it's rules to get here. And it's rules to get out of here. And that was just mind blowing to me because I never thought about it like that. You have to meet a certain criteria to get in here. and You have to meet a certain criteria to get out of here.
0: And they referred to Skid Row as an open air asylum.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that was crazy. You know, Carrie, I went back about two weeks ago and I watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And I was watching that film. I was like, nothing's changed about our psych wards. Same thing. Behind glass. Same, same exact same exact thing. And I don't know when that movie was made, but we're still in the same exact place inside of these wards and the way we deliver services.
0: You mentioned that trip when we invited five people out from Trieste to tour our system in 2018. And you're the one that took us on the tour of Skid Row. And I remember feeling so ashamed to show that to them. But I also remember, Anthony, we went to a place called Penmar, which <laughs> you had always told me about Penmar. And and you described it as a place where people basically, their only way to be outside is to be in a cage. And I didn't believe you. And then when we drove up to see it, I... see I, the cage. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Yeah. It's a big cage over a big concrete yeah. piece of asphalt that that's their outdoor recreation area. Yeah. And I think our friends from Italy were just stunned.
1: Yeah, I, I think, I don't know if it's like that in America, but who would want to be in that system? Who, who, I I wouldn't want to be in that system and I got let go and then you tell me I need to go back to that system. I'm going to tell you, uh, I'd rather die on the streets, buddy. You know, I'm I'm not going back to that. So it's just the way we care for the people with disabilities in America that are shameful.
0: So you're now part of a county team called the home team, which is trying very hard to do this, whatever it takes for as long as it takes kind of engagement with seriously mentally ill people. Do we have enough people doing this work? What could we do to really ramp this up, in your opinion?
1: Well, I think the home team's doing a pretty good job from where we started at two and a half years ago to where we're at. Today, we're doing a really, really good job. Do we need more staff? Yes, yes. This is the first time in the county where they're doing a coordinated effort to bring these individuals in. And teams are overwhelmed, right, right? How many people can we take on? We don't know if there's 3,000 individuals out there like that or 8,000. Who knows? Who knows? We do homeless counts all the time, but we haven't done that type of count. That type of data on these individuals have never been entered. We we just don't know. I believe we need a lot more staff to do this work. And we need a lot more people that are willing to do this work.
0: I know you're doing training because you are pretty gifted in this space and you've walked the walk and talked the talk your whole career. What is it that you're trying to teach these people who are doing this work for the county?
1: The outreach should be relentless. This should be relentless. I don't care if we're going to go see a client or you're going to go see a person and you're driving down Vermont or you're driving down Hollywood Boulevard. If you see somebody that meets the criteria, you need to stop. And that engagement needs to be relentless. Don't care if the person says, hey, I don't want your help. You go back. You keep going and you keep going and you keep going and have a plan. We need to have a plan about these individuals and the work should be meaningful. It shouldn't just be about documentation. These individuals are not in a box, so our services can't be in a box. Don't know what the service is going to look like from day to day because these individuals have never been worked with in 20 years. You can't leave somebody on the street psychotic for 10 years without any medication and on math with severe medical issues and think you can put it in a box because the box doesn't fit them because the box was never made for them. So we have to create our own system, our own way of delivering services. That's what I'm trying to teach the teams now, and we're off to a pretty, pretty good start. Outpatient conservatorship is going on right now, which is really, really good.
0: What does that mean?
1: Well, we're doing um, street conservatorship. We're petitioning with Public Guardian on the streets. The public guardian is actually coming to the streets and meeting with our teams and psychiatrists and all of this other stuff that's going on. And we're actually doing conservatorships on the streets now where we're not trying to put people in hospitals and traumatize them over and over and over again. And once these people are conserved, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go to an IMD. You might be conserving go into a boarding care situation, stabilized on medication, You can miss the whole hospital system. It's just things like that and the teams following people, right? Making sure people are connected to FSP and FSP is following these individuals and holding them responsible.
0: And what is FSP?
1: Full service partnership and making sure that the contract agencies are doing what they're supposed to be doing. I think the days are long gone where people are just going to get funding for not doing their job.
0: You know, with our Hollywood Top 14 experience where we were learning as we were doing it was instinctually, we would try to find people's families Correct. just to get history on who the person was and what their background was and found out sometimes some very interesting things like college degree and had a job and family or whatever. And in Italy, we certainly saw that the family is definitely included in trying to round out the whole person's background. Correct. And I know there's a lot of rules in our American system that if you work for Perhaps a county agency, you might have less flexibility than if you worked for a nonprofit. But have you been able to crack the code on how to connect and find people's families?
1: Yes, our teams but the county are starting to do that now, which is an amazing feat in itself, right? So they're working with Public Guardian and they're finding out all, all back this back information and all of this stuff. And in some instances, they're contacting the family, right? They're, they're starting to do that type of work and they're starting to create their own out-of-the-box services um, within the department. And it's starting to work. And we're just at the beginning stages of it now, but I do believe that this work will be just commonplace. The work that I done in the past will just be common work, right? That is just be run of the mill work, right? And and hopefully if we get to the point where our mantra be care for people, we can get to that mantra instead of all these other mantras. Maybe that'll just be commonplace, too, one day.
0: Can you share one story from your home experience? I know I've seen a couple presentations of people that you were able to relentlessly surround and not give up and include the family, but maybe share one story that kind of gives you hope that we're on a new trajectory. Well,
1: this is one thing I, I learned about working with people that are super difficult. I was at OPCC when I first started doing this work, and my first client, was homeless for 25 years, didn't want services, didn't want anything. And I outreached this guy for at least a year. And then he finally went indoors and started working with him. And he had cancer of the throat. And and every day, every month, I knew he had Social Security benefits. And I would just tell him every day, every month, man, can you save some money? Because you're going to get an apartment. And he would buy a pack of cigarettes and a lottery ticket. That's all he would buy. And I just could not figure it out. And I remember on a Friday sitting with him on a bus bench after we went and seen his doctor's appointment. And I rode off on a bike and I said, Bill, I'll see you later on. And I rode off on my bicycle and I went home the weekend. He died on that bus stop. This guy died on the bus stop. And I remember him telling me one day, he said, I never thought my angel would come in the form of a black man. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa. When he died, the work doesn't stop because somebody died. Contacted his family in the Midwest. Come to find out he was taking his money every month and sending it to his daughter for college, right? And that's what said, hey, hold on, hold on. People, people are just people that care about other people just because someone is homeless. And he left his family because he lost his job and he felt like he couldn't provide for his family. That's it, that's all. And that has moved me in in social services sense and plus my own personal story with my father right so that has always moved me in social services that story right there
0: do you want to share a little bit about your father
1: yeah my father was um he left when i was six months old he left when i was six months old and i remember him coming by every blue moon and seeing me um my stepfather raised me which i call my dad now and my mom and um he was just, you of my life I was like maybe nine or 10 years old. And i would probably see him once, twice a year. And he would come by, hey, hey, how you doing? And leave. And I never knew what happened to him. And every Christmas, New Year's, birthday, holiday, I would always think about him. And um, I didn't know at the time that he became homeless on Skid Row, 1984, 83, 84. And um. That's where he was at. A social worker introduced me to my father because of my name is so weird. So I don't know your father and um I met my father on Olive Street in front of a courthouse and um he was happy.
0: What year was that?
1: Maybe two thousand and seven, six, somewhere in there, and um, he was happy. And when I seen him, it was like this big hole in my heart just like disappeared. And um I had this beautiful relationship with him over the next decade or decade and a half or so, and um, he died. He, he died in two years ago, and uh, I remember the hospital at USC calling me, saying, are you, you his son? And I was like, yeah, I'm his only son, and I went to the hospital, and um, I got to be there for my father and um, help with all the medical stuff and everything else and talk to him, and I got to re- meet the rest of my family that I never, ever knew Right. And I have a relationship with the his family now, my, my aunts and her kids and everything else. And I got this relationship with them now and my aunt texts me all the time and all of this other stuff. So it turned out to be a beautiful story for me. And um, that's my hope for every person that's on the streets and their family members don't know where they're at and kids don't know where their parents are at because they're sick and they're mentally ill is not their fault. And if we can bring closure to a family that's meaningful, I think that's what it's all about.
0: Oh, I love that, Anthony. I love the way you said that the hole in your heart closed. It it just almost seems divine that you were able to enter into that relationship with him, which is profound. That's a profound story. And it seems to inform so much of, of who you are. I want to ask you just one last question, just because it's Well, two questions, to be honest. One's kind of contemporary, and then one will be philosophical. We're at this state right now in Los Angeles. We're the epicenter of the United States. Homeless tragedy. We've got all sorts of people (laughs) trying to enter into the fray to figure out what the solution is, which, as you have navigated with us today, is not particularly easy. We had a new proposal announced yesterday by a group called the Committee for Los Angeles to come up with a way to centralize leadership and authority to get us on the other side of this. And then we have this federal court judge who, in response to a lawsuit that was filed, has been using the weight of his judicial authority that he does have to try to, like, you know, jumpstart some kind of quick... Response. And some have called his involvement chaotic, but I also do think he has raised awareness of a lot of people who don't normally follow this issue of how challenging this is. But he recently ordered the city and the county to offer single women and unaccompanied children on Skid Row a place to stay within 90 days. He wants families placed within 120 days. And then finally, by October 18th, offer every homeless person on Skid Row housing or shelter. I think thinking that this order, this judicial order would somehow be the magic potion to counteract what you have said has been decades and decades and decades of a of a ecosystem that has existed. You've made a really compelling case that just offering people shelter or housing is not going to be the answer. If Judge Carter pulled you into his courtroom and said Anthony, like, I'm trying to do something to make a difference here, but you have some important insights for me on how we get ahead of this and how do we reduce the misery in Skid Row. What would you want to tell the judge? You
1: know, Gary, it's all caught up in the courts right now, but I think I could tell the judge anything. And me and Dr. Sharon talk about this a lot when we do talk. If it's not meaningful, then why are we doing it? If it's not meaningful, why are we doing it? People have been traumatized and traumatized about all of this stuff that has happened for decades on these streets with homelessness. If it's not meaningful, then why are we doing it? It goes back to Molly. Once they're housed, the work just begins. It goes all the way back to Molly's philosophy. You can't house broken people without trying to mend them.
0: It almost requires a complete reframing of how we do this work. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, Anthony, you, you've had quite a career working in the most challenging of circumstances, but with these moments of redemption and hope, you know, that you've seen in people's lives being changed and people calling you and the gratitude that you experienced. What is your hope quotient for the future as you look around Los Angeles and there's a tremendous acceptance that this is not the status quo is, is not acceptable. What is your hope quotient that we can find a better way forward? What keeps you going?
1: Well, you know, you got leadership of all of these big departments, and eh, they have really, really good ideas. Then I see all these young social workers that have amazing ideas. And I do believe that social work in LA County with these young social workers and these young outreach workers with all of these amazing ideas, that the paradigm is shifting and it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time, but I see that, because I've been doing it almost 20 years, and I've seen the paradigm shifting, but now I see all of these young social workers coming in to this field, and they have some amazing ideas, and they fresh eyes on it, and I think that's amazing. That That's super amazing. Savannah is one of those people, right? Carla Bennett is one of those people. There's so many of them out there that have, fresh ideas and and it's ready to, to go.
0: Yeah. And we need to give them the latitude and, and the discretion to do what instinctually comes to them as human beings wanting to engage with other human beings.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Put the let the bureaucracy <laughs> slide into the sunset.
1: Yeah, let that, that, that slide into the sunset and um see see what happens. Because I I do believe in housing, but Molly always said this and it makes so much sense. Appropriate housing. That's the term people forget. Appropriate housing. We need to get out of this thing. Housing, housing, housing. No, appropriate housing.
0: Yeah, yeah. And not just fitting the mold of the one size fits all with permanent supportive housing or whatever whatever we're offering at the moment. Yeah. Um, Anthony, it's just so great to see you again after all these months. I can't believe it. Um, I always learned so much from you. You have taught me a lot about the patience. And the thing I've always learned about you is you get down on the ground to talk to people. If they're on the ground, you're on the ground with them. You're at eye level. Meet them where they're at. I've seen you lay on the ground. I've seen you you lay on the ground if necessary. So the... the,
1: Well, my mom taught me that. Respect people. No matter where they're at or who they are, you respect them.
0: Yeah, And that I've seen that in action and you truly are an angel that has uh, entered into the lives of so many people and we are so grateful for the work you've done. And I know it's hard. I know you're not going to do this forever, but I love that you are pouring yourself into training the next generation. And we have a lot of hope for the fresh recruits and the fresh energy and the care and compassion of the next generation of people doing social work, crisis work, clinical work, and just coming alongside people. Yeah. So Mm. thank you for being here today.
1: Thank you, Carrie. Thank you for having me. Thank you.
0: Have a lovely day. You too. In the words of Molly Lowry, who played a mentorship role in Anthony's life, the work really begins once someone is housed. Anthony makes the case for creating a system which stays connected to people for life. I love that he rests his hope on the shoulders of the young people who are entering this field as social workers, clinicians, case managers. I place my hope in the next generation as well. Those who are fortunate enough to be trained and mentored by Anthony are off to a very good start. Hartford will take a one-week summer break to hit the open road and be intentional about some rest and renewal. Please join us again in two weeks for the next episode of this podcast. Thank you to my collaborating partners at Peer Mental Health. Thank you also to our supporters who financially contribute and make the production of this podcast possible. And thank you to my technical editor, Paul Robinson. I will see you in two weeks.